church are dismissed out that door. Ephesians chapter 5, you'll want your notes today, and if you're watching online, these are available on our mobile app. I had the privilege of visiting ancient Ephesus a number of years ago. It's in modern Turkey. When you enter ancient Ephesus, there is first century graffiti carved into the stone inviting the new arrival to go to the brothel. That's the culture that Paul is writing to in the first century when he wrote the book of Ephesians. And he called the people of God to live lives that were holy and whole. Let's stand together as I read Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 3 out of the ESV. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at, what time, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Just say that. Holy Spirit, come. Speak to my heart. Change my life for your glory. I believe your word. I receive your truth. Have your will and way now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So today we conclude this three-part series called Sex, Singleness, and Sanctification. I was reminded this week that on a topic like this, which is so distorted by the world, so twisted by the enemy, it's important for us to remember again that when we talk about this topic, beloved, we are standing on holy ground. It's holy ground because, first of all, God created it. On the sixth day, it says that He created man in His own image, male and female, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And he saw everything that he had made, and he said, now previous to this day, he had said it's good. On the sixth day, he said it's very good. When done as it is created to be done, one man, one woman, in the context of marriage, it is a beautiful, sacred, godly thing. This is holy ground, folks. Number two, because Jesus affirmed this, it's holy ground. Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus was asked about divorce, he says, let me remind you that from the beginning, God created male and female. And he said, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That word literally means to stick like glue. And the two will become one flesh. And what God has joined together. Did you hear that? What God has joined together. Let no one separate. This is holy ground. 
Holy ground also because the, the two becoming one is sort of a, a little picture in a, in, a, in a mysterious way, kind of like the Trinity, where you have three in one. You can't fully explain it, but it's true. So two become one in marriage, three in one, the Holy Trinity of the Godhead. This is holy ground. And it's holy ground also because it displays our need for connection. We talked about this in week one, that it, we all have a need to love and be loved to connect and to have intimacy with other people, but especially in the marriage context. And it's interesting that in Genesis 4, verse 1, it says, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Say, so why would it use the word know for sex? Because it's more than physical. It's the word yada in the Hebrew, which is a deep, intimate, personal relationship. And so the Hebrews would have never said so-and-so got married and, they, and they, on their wedding night they had sex. No, it would say on their wedding night they knew each other. And that yada word is the same word used in Jeremiah 9 where it says, Let not a mighty man boast of his might or a rich man of his riches, but let him who boasts boast that he understands and knows yada me, the Lord God. And so it's holy ground when we talk about this topic because it's, it's, it's talking about our need for connection. Which is why, of all the analogies that God could use to refer to our relationship with Him, what did He pick? He calls us the bride of Christ. <laughs> that in the same depth of intimacy and exclusivity that a husband and a wife should have with one another, so are we to live under the lordship of Jesus, have no other gods before Him, have a relationship with Him that is so intimate, God would say it's likened to a marriage. In Ephesians 5, husband and wife. But what I'm really talking about is Christ in the church. Wow. And we have this book of the Bible that, that, that we still haven't settled among scholars. Is Song of Solomon about husband and wife or is it about Jesus in the church? The answer, yes. <laughs> it's both. The most intimate relational book of the Bible, Song of Solomon, is about the husband and wife relationship but it's also a beautiful picture of Jesus and his bride, the church. Some have said that what sex is in marriage is similar to what worship is in our relationship with Jesus. Beloved, this is holy ground. It's holy ground also because, listen up, young people, there's joy in God. He's not a killjoy. We talked in week one that one of the purposes of sex is pleasure. And it just shows that God is a God of joy and proper pleasure. Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who is seated at the right hand of God? Jesus. Joy in our relationship with God. And finally, we are standing on holy ground as we talk about this. Because it's also kind of a, a picture of the gospel. In the, in, in, in the fact that God chose sex to be that which creates new physical life. Be fruitful and multiply. We have new spiritual life in Jesus when we're born again. This is holy ground. Seven ways in which this topic is holy ground. And we must stand upon this ground with deep respect. What God created, it's a wonderful thing. And singles, let me just remind you as I did last week, you're not an incomplete person without sex. You are complete in Jesus. And you, based upon 1 Corinthians 6, it says that you actually, it's better to be single, Paul said, 
when it comes to serving the kingdom because you can give undistracted devotion to God and you're called to holiness just like married people are called to holiness. You're tempted, so are we. We are all to live holy for the glory of God and take great comfort, singles, that we serve a Savior who was single and died a virgin at 33. So I want to address three questions today in my time, and then we're going to have an extended time of question and answer. So be thinking about your questions, jotting them down. I'm going to address briefly LGBTQ and same-sex attraction, sexual abuse, and then what does it mean to walk in sexual wholeness? What about LGBTQ and SSA, or same-sex attraction? Well, God's Word says in Genesis 1, again, that He created man in His own image. This is Imago Day stuff, you guys. Male and female, be fruitful and multiply. And He saw everything that He had made, and it was very good. The Bible is very clear that sex outside of the one-man, one-woman marital relationship is sin. This would include, but not limited to, premarital sex, adultery, incest, friendship with benefits, open marriages, rape, homosexual sex, pedophilia, bestiality, and to take it even deeper, Jesus said if you lust after someone in your heart, you undress them in your heart, you go to bed with them in your heart, that's as if you commit adultery. So he even took it to the thought life, which would include porn. All of this is sin, beloved. And it grieves God's heart, and it moves Him in compassion. But praise God, every sin can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus and can be healed by the grace of God. It's like a fence in your backyard. You say to your children, enjoy these boundaries, enjoy this fenced-in yard, play on the swing set, have fun, but if you get outside of that fenced-in area, there's a seven-lane highway that goes right by our house, and you could be killed and destroyed. God puts limits and boundaries on things for our protection. I do not believe that people are born gay. But because of the fall and because of sin, which we're all born into, some have same-sex attractions, and that is a temptation. No different than the heterosexual that has temptations toward someone that he or she is not married to, whether single or married. But they, the SSA person and the heterosexual attracted to someone he or she is not married to, both must not act on that temptation. Both must take every thought captive or they fall out of God's will and grieve His Spirit. There's a movement today that is pushing its agenda for everyone to accept this as normal. How do we respond? Jesus gave us a model in John chapter 8 that I believe applies to this area, but almost any relational area, and that is when he was, was brought, they brought to Him a woman who had just been caught in the very act of adultery. And what we see Jesus doing there, I think, is a great model for us as the people of God. The first thing he did when he addressed this woman was he gave grace. 
And I think it's profound that he knelt down, and Aaron Payne and I were talking about this this week, and he had a, a, a twist on this that I love, because there's all this debate about what did he write in the sand, you know, that's where everybody goes. What did he write in the sand? Maybe the names of those that had had sex with her, or maybe the names of those who had been just as guilty as she. And, and, and Aaron said, and I love this, he goes, I think he just knelt down to get on her level, to look her in the eye, and to demonstrate incredible love and compassion and empathy Because the first thing he did was he said, neither do I condemn you. Grace. Beloved, if we don't show grace, then we never will be able to give truth that's received. We first must come with grace. We first must come with compassion. And understanding that many people who struggle with all kinds of sexual things, often it's because of something in their past that needs to be healed and resolved. But then he gave truth. He didn't say to her, you know, I know you were really in love with them, and, and uh, I know it's the Ten Commandments, they don't commit adultery, but, you know, if you really love them and it feels okay, that's okay. No, he said go and sin no more. He was willing to call sin, sin. But he didn't come first with the truth that would then push her away. He came first with grace and love and compassion. And then he gave the truth. And in John chapter 1, it says Jesus came full of truth and grace. In Ephesians 4 and 17, it says, speak the truth in love. Truth and grace are always the perfect response to someone either in sin or any human issue. May we be people that are full of truth and grace. Now, the next issue is huge, and it's hard to talk about, and I wish I didn't have to. What about sexual abuse? I cannot imagine the pain and hardship that this sin brings to people's lives. Statistics, and this would probably not include those not reported, one in ten children will be sexually abused before their 18th birthday. One in seven girls will be sexually abused before they turn 18. And think about how many situations involve family members because 90% of those sexually abused know the abuser. And the effects are horrendous, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual. Jesus said we are to love our neighbors ourselves. Jesus said to treat others the way you want to be treated. The verse that really comes to mind is is Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, where Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him to, to have a great millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. The Bible speaks of sexual abuse in 2 Samuel 13 when Tamar was raped by her half-brother Amnon. Such a sad story. And they told her, be quiet, don't say anything, which is often what they say to victims today is, don't say anything, don't make waves. I think the best way for this topic to be addressed is for you to hear a testimony right now from our own Christy Freeland. So watch this. Hi, my name is Christy Freeland, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, his redemptive power, and his ability to provide healing in every facet of our lives. I'm going to share some difficult things with you today, but I share them in the hopes that in my honesty and transparency, you see the healing power of Jesus Christ, and that he truly is our joy and peace through all of life's trials and tribulations. At the age of two, my parents divorced. 
and this created an abandonment wound in my heart and soul. I'm so thankful that I was still raised in the church, which created a firm foundation for my heart. I gave my life to Jesus Christ at the age of seven and was baptized. His word taught me that I was reclaimed from abandoned to adopted into God's family through Jesus. Little did I know just how much I would need to know that truth. Shortly after this, my life completely turned upside down when I was sexually abused by a father figure for seven years, starting at the age of eight. This completely rocked my identity, who I was created to be, and this led to many devastating choices in my life. Even after the abuse was put to a stop, I continued living out my trauma, believing the lies of my abuser and the enemy of my soul, who taught me that I was created for sex and that sex equals love. This led to a relationship with an older man, who in turn professed to love me, but trafficked me during the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. This led to compounded trauma, more bad relationships, addictions, sexual sin, and broke my heart in ways that words cannot convey. I was broken, but I knew exactly where I needed to turn. Jesus could completely restore me and heal me. He continued to draw me to himself through the hymns and all the scripture that I had had hidden in my heart from a young age, and I'm sure all the prayers of my grandparents and parents. Then I began to saturate myself in his word and believing his truth over the voice of the enemy about who I was and whose I was. I couldn't read enough of his word. I truly hungered for it. Isaiah 61 taught me that he both rescues and redeems and gives beauty for ashes. Jesus could set me free. 2 Corinthians 5.17 taught me that I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. My identity is in him. Not what's been done to me, not even what I have done, because the old has passed away and the new has come. Learning and living out my identity in Christ was a game changer for me. I was ready to shed all of the labels that the world had placed on me. Even though I had been baptized as a child, I chose Jesus as an adult and was baptized again. Surrendering to Jesus as Lord of my life, being in his word daily, Spending time with him in prayer and worship. And the last and integral part is seeking and surrounding myself with wise, godly counsel to help me in my healing journey. Therapy with a Christian counselor has catapulted my healing exponentially, especially when dealing from the trauma of sexual abuse and sexual sin. I even began praying for the salvation of my abusers and through the obedience to pray for my enemy, was finally able to forgive them and I was set free. I was also able to forgive myself for all of the poor decisions I had made while living out the trauma that had happened to me. I realized that no matter what the enemy tries to steal, kill, and destroy in my life, the things he can never steal from me is my hope in Jesus Christ, the word I have hidden in my heart, and worshiping him every day in spirit and truth. I finally understand the joy that James 1 boasts about, and it has become my life verse. I also have a great empathy and care for others in hardship. His promise to use everything for my good is being fulfilled through the ability to comfort others in the same way he has comforted me, like it says in 2 Corinthians 1. 
God is using me to minister to others who have experienced sexual abuse, sex trafficking, and many other issues. I also train adults through darkness to light on how to keep children safe from sexual abuse. Jesus is truly the Redeemer. Thank you so much for allowing me to share my story for God's glory alone. Amen. Christy, I know you're watching online. Thank you for that. And thanks, Kevin, for your support of your wife through this whole journey. And you know, when you hear a testimony like that, it just gives you hope. Whether it's you're struggling in an area like we're talking about right now or something totally different. He is the forgiver. He is the healer. He's the one who sets the captives free. And you know, when people used to come with these issues, I always had to kind of refer them to people outside of our church, but it's so encouraging to the glory of God that really I can point people to resources that we have here now for healing. And often people who have been healed like Christy say they take great comfort in the fact that the one who heals, Jesus, is the one who went through incredible abuse. For Jesus was rejected, ridiculed, flogged, beaten, spit upon, and crucified for us so that we could be forgiven and healed. He can relate to your hurt. Now let me conclude today, and it's similar to what we talked about last week with sanctification, but a little different twist because it's so important that we be, be, be as practical as we can. How can we walk in sexual wholeness? And I want you to look at these three graphics real quick. Notice that this one, there's parts of the heart that are shattered and broken and then this next slide, they're beginning to come back together. And then the third one, the heart is whole. It's been restored. It may still have some, some scars, but those are reminders of what God has done. And it, and it's Psalm 23, He restores our soul. And that word restore, I looked it up this week in the Hebrew, it literally means to bring back. It's the same Hebrew word for when the raven was released by Noah in the ark and it came back because there was no land to land on yet. And God wants to restore your soul. God wants you to walk and me to walk in sexual wholeness. So the first thing on this is you've got to be honest. Think about an area right now maybe in this topic or something else that you need wholeness. The first step is be honest. You've got to be real to heal you got to feel to heal. You've, you've got to be willing to bring it in the light. And this is where knowing the nature of God is so important. Yet, beloved, He knows it all anyway. If, you're, if you keep it to yourself, you're only hiding it from yourself. Somebody said once, you're only as sick as your secrets. And so you bring it in the light, 1 John 1, and that's where the blood of Jesus can cleanse. Proverbs 28 and 13 says, He who conceals his sin will not prosper. Conceal means to sweep it under the rug, pretend it's not there, not face it. But he who confesses and forsakes it shall find mercy. It's the truth that sets us free. You've got to be willing to bring it into the light. Psalm 145 says that God is near to those who call upon him in truth. To not pretend, but bring it out. And this is often not only with God, but with a trusted person who, who knows the Lord. So be honest and face it. Number two, submitting to God's truth. The old phrase, Father knows best, boy, that's true. In, in Romans 12, it says His will is good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. His will is the best for you. It's acceptable, you can accept it, and it's perfect. 
His will is the best. And so you submit to His truth about His will, His morals, His standards. You submit to His truth about His nature, that, that He's holy, but He's also forgiving. He's a God of justice and mercy. And, and you bring all that together and you see that He's a Father who has compassion and wants to help you. You, you, you receive the truth about your identity, the truth about the gospel, the truth about where forgiveness is found. And John 8 and 32 says the truth will set you free. Number three, the biggest truth you need to receive in this is to receive His forgiveness. Because so many of us live in guilt and shame and condemnation about our sin. But beloved, if you bring your sin to the cross, the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Receive that. Believe that. Stand in that. On Friday, I played in a charity golf event in Atlanta to raise money for this ministry to high school and middle school students. And it was really cool. First of all, I'm not a good golfer, okay? So I, we played scramble, you know, the best ball deal. They used two of my shots all day. That shows you how not good I am. And so on this particular hole, you know, the two, first two guys, I mean, they drove way out there. There was no, my best drive ever would never be anything. So I just sat in the cart sovereignty of God, the two ladies that come by offering the drinks and the snacks, I said, I'm going to take this opportunity to use one of my salty questions from our nobleman group. And, our, and I said, by the way, I'm in this group, and we're supposed to ask people this, this question this week. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? Well, this young woman immediately said, could he ever forgive me? Well, you're not supposed to answer those questions, but this one, I mean, they're teeing me up. There's no way I'm not going to answer that. And I just said, well, I can tell you right now that he does forgive any and all sin that we bring to him because of what Jesus did on the cross. And she immediately begins to tear up. Folks, people are hungry for the grace of God. And here she is, plagued by guilt and, and thinking, there's no way God would forgive me for what I've done. He'll forgive any sin that's brought to the cross. Number four, resist Satan's lies. Phyllis Kaiser said something profound to me this week. And listen real close. She says, isn't it interesting that the same thing Satan tempts us to do, he condemns us when we do it. He tempts you to sin, then you sin, and what does he do? He heaps condemnation on you. But the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, but if you bring it to the cross and you believe God's truth, He forgives, He heals, He declares you righteous, it is forgiven. So when Satan tries to bring past stuff to you that you've brought to the cross, you need to have truth that you stand on to resist those lies. This is why Jesus said one of the pieces of the armor in Ephesians 6 is the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? Word of God. Swords are for defense and offense. So you need to have truth that you deflect lies that come at you and truth that you use offensively to declare and decree who you are in Jesus. You've got to fight with the Word and the Spirit to resist those lies of the enemy. Number five, and I've talked about this a lot, but it can't be overemphasized, link arms with others. You cannot battle this area alone. I believe sexual temptation and sin is the greatest area of demonic attack today in our culture. We need to link arms with others. We need a band of brothers, a band of sisters. Galatians 6.1, bear one another's burdens. Proverbs 27.17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Hebrews 10, encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing closer. 
We need others in this journey. Number six, keep growing in Jesus. The best defense against temptation and sin is a strong offense of a growing, abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus. I mean, this is a solution for everything. Keep growing. Keep going deeper. Keep be willing. Stay willing to explore your own sexual brokenness. Realize that, you know what? I wish I could say otherwise, but this side of heaven, I'm not sure we're ever going to be free of struggles in this area. Which is why we must abide. We must stay close to Christ. We must be in His Word. We must be in prayer. We must be in a godly church so that we are continuing to grow. And I found this. The more I grow in Him, the less I want to sin. I didn't say the more I grow in Him, I can get to the place where I never want to sin. But I do believe that the more we grow in Jesus, the more we experience intimacy with Jesus, the more we experience the power of His Word, the less sin will be attractive to us. And finally, number seven, depend on the Holy Spirit. We cannot live a holy life, H-O-L-Y, nor can we become whole, W-H-O-L-E, without the holy, H-O-L-Y, Spirit. We have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead alive within us. Which is why, right after this section in Ephesians 5 about sexual purity, I went to verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. What is God saying to you today? What do you need to bring into the light? Where do you need help? We're here to help. What questions do you have? So today we're going to have an extended time of question and answer to wrap up this series. And I've invited Phyllis Kaiser to join me for this. And I'm so thankful for her. She is a licensed professional counselor. And she's also a certified sex therapist. There aren't many of those out there, especially that do it from a biblical perspective. So the question, the number to, to text your questions in are on the screen. You can also raise your hand, but I, we've got, a, we got plenty in the first service texted in. I don't think we'll need to have any raise the hand questions, but if you want to do that, you're welcome to, but prefer that you text it in. Um, and then Jeff, are you here? He's going to handle the text questions. There's a microphone up here. Where's Jeff Wren? Somebody better go get him. But let's begin by, Phyllis, I want you to tell just a little of your story and how you got into this. <laughs> yeah, I like to do that um, when I talk about sexuality, especially at church, because people don't usually talk about this at church. Um, I was feeling nervous at the first service, and I'm still feeling nervous, so um, I'd like to pray for a moment, Amen. please. Um, Father, um, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, <clears throat> well, it wasn't my idea. Let me just start by saying that and back up and give you some of the story of um, how I ended up here today. Um, as a kid, a little kid, um, I grew up in that seven-lane highway. Uh, that you were talking about when you talked about boundaries. was exposed to a lot of things, damaging things as a child, um, including um, sexual abuse, infidelity, sexual addiction, 
incest, domestic violence, those kinds of things. So I grew up really warped and broken, but I really didn't have an understanding of that. It was just sort of the water that I swam in. And so um, I grew up in the 70s. Um, I did middle school, high school, and college in the 70s. And um, I grew up in the church. We lived next door to the church. Went to church all the time. Went to a Christian school, but I never heard anything about God's design for sexuality. And so, as a young woman, um, I began to make disastrous decisions and choices about my sexuality um, and paid a high price for that. And thankfully, I met Jerry, and we got married in 1982, and we were both a hot mess. Uh, we didn't realize it, but we were. And um, we began to have children, and in the 90s, um, I began to sleepwalk like six, seven, eight times a night for three or four years. It was very disruptive, and one day Jerry said, I gotta find somewhere else to sleep, because <laughs> I was exhausting him with my sleepwalking. But what that was all about was the Spirit of God bringing to the surface all those things that had been buried and swept under the rug and not addressed um, from my childhood and from my young adulthood and teenage years. And so, you know, God is always gracious um, when he brings our brokenness, our sin, our hurt into the light. And that's what he did. And, and so I'm so thankful that he did that, that Jesus literally rescued me from darkness. He brought me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And I am um, eternally grateful for that. And so, you know, I gave the Lord a lot of raw material to work with. And um in 2005, Jerry uh, got called to go to Asbury Seminary, and so I went along as the dutiful wife. We sold our house and put our stuff in the big moving truck and moved to Kentucky, and we had not been there long, and the Lord began to say to me, you too. Actually, what he said was, and I didn't say this at the first service, um, he said, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, and so I went back to school, to counseling school, sort of kicking and screaming because I didn't really care to go back to school. But the Lord, that's what the Lord had for me. So in January 2007, uh, I took a human sexuality class. And for the first time in my life, I heard about God's design for sexuality. And I was 49 years old. I'd never heard it before. And I couldn't believe it. And it was shocking and beautiful all at the same time. And we had to write two papers. We had to write a theology of sex, which I'd never heard of a theology of sex. I didn't know that prepositional phrase existed. <laughs> and awesome. we also had to write our uh, personal sexual autobiography and turn it in and have someone else read it. Well, that was horrifying. Mm. And so I was sitting at my kitchen table weeping, um, writing these papers, and I had bargained with God about going back to school, which I don't recommend, but I had done it, and what I'd said to the Lord was, I'll go, but you got to tell me exactly what you want me to do, because I don't want this to be just a good idea that I had. I want to know that you're asking me to do something specific, and so the Lord said to me when I was writing those papers, he, he's like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the message of sexual wholeness to the church, 
and help people understand their sexuality. And I said, my church? And he said, no, the church. And I'm like, well, what's that going to look like? And the Lord was like, I'll show you. And so here I am today um, answering God's call on my life. And uh, so that's sort of how, that's the, the short answer to how I got here. <laughs> Thank you for doing course, that, yeah. Bang. And um, you. so you literally, five days a week, you kind of... I sort of traffic in this stuff, really. <laughs> <laughs> I read all the time and talk to people a lot. So, yeah. so you see firsthand a lot of the brokenness. And, but God's using you to bring I also healing. see some amazing healing, Amen. too, that, yeah. that God does in people's lives. Love it. Which is beautiful. All right. So do we have some questions? <laughs> Jeff's the, the wise yes. man that has to sort through all these today. He did a great job in first. Wow. Your phone is like blowing up. <laughs> You weren't supposed to tell him that was my number. That's okay. Oh, sorry. sorry I give sorry. it out all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to try to group these thematically like we did in the last service okay. so we can sort of stay you know, and then move. Um, and this is related to what you just said about seeing God work. Uh, what is the best way to minister to someone who has been sexually abused or had an abortion? I think that's a good question. Um, well, sort of what David mentioned earlier Um a lot of love, a lot of grace, um, and truth. And we, uh, you know, I think at the first service you said something about time not healing. Time, time alone doesn't heal. Yeah. Time, time does not heal. Sometimes a passing of time makes things a little easier to bear. But time does not heal. So if you, for instance... If you broke your leg as a child and you had a compound fracture and you did not get appropriate medical treatment, you yeah. might lose your leg, mm -hmm. um, but you would probably most assuredly have a bad limp. It would be difficult for you to walk mm -hmm. because if you had gotten appropriate treatment, it would include x-rays and surgery and sutures and cast and months and months of physical therapy for you to be able to use that wounded limb. And so most of us can understand a physical mm -hmm. metaphor, but when we are sexually abused, it's the same thing, but it happens to our soul and to our spirit and sometimes our bodies. Um, and so time alone does not heal. It takes treatment. It takes the love and the forgiveness and the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ entering into those damaged places. And so whether it's sexual abuse or whatever, or abortion, that there is not, those are not forgivable sins. The blood of Jesus you is... You they're not forgivable sins. They're, they're, they're not unforgivable they're, Sorry, they're not unforgivable. Thank you. Amen. They're not unforgivable sins. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. Amen. It is sufficient. And where and sin abounds, grace even more. Even more. Yes. So this is also related to abuse. It says, I'm struggling with forgiving my abuser and my family for quieting my abuse. I'm struggling with God as well. I know that he is good and he promises to make all things meant for evil work toward my good. But it really, really doesn't feel good right now. I'm praying to see my story from his perspective not mine, anything you could add or recommend. Yeah, I think that's a, a common 
situation when someone's been abused. And let me just say about forgiving your abuser that forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Reconciliation means that we go forward in some sort of relationship. It is not always wise to reconcile with your abuser. We, we forgive because Jesus says, this is what is best for you. He, Jesus says, basically, live in a spirit and an attitude of forgiveness. Forgive 70 times 7. In other words, keep wanting to forgive. Keep asking God to make your heart able to forgive. Um, I read a prayer uh, this week in um, Pete Scazzaro's book about emotionally healthy relationships. And in it, there's this prayer that we pray for our enemy, this prayer that we pray for someone who has hurt us or betrayed us or damaged us. And I think when we can do that, it, it frees us to receive what Jesus has for us. But it does not mean that we go back into a relationship with that person. There takes a lot of work and wisdom and wise counsel to decide if that's even a good thing to do. And, and with regard to your family, um, you know, I think one of the atrocities of sexual abuse is that oftentimes our families are complicit in the abuse. And that is so damaging to us because we need for our family to be a place of safety. And when our family is complicit in sexual abuse, it demolishes that safety that we need and puts us out in the middle of that seven-lane highway with, without the resources that we need to make sense of the things that have happened to us. And I think, too, that's a good opportunity for that person to talk to a Christy Freeland or you. Absolutely. You know, it's Get huge. help, yes. Um, and the mad at God is very normal. Yes. God can handle it. He's Absolutely. Big we can pound on his chest. David was often angry at God in the Psalms. Yeah, why did you let this happen? Yeah. And, and the, I love the psalmist because they, they make room for all the human emotions. Amen. And that, when will you vindicate me, O God? Mm. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will I suffer under this burden and this weight? And God makes a way for us. Okay, and uh, switch topics. Uh, this is about same-sex attraction. A couple different questions. I'll go ahead and read both of them. They're short. Um, when having close friendships with those who identify as LGBT, how do you start those conversations regarding truth? Do you wait for the other person to bring it up? And then the other question is, what can people in this church who struggle with SSA expect from the church, especially those who've opened up about this and been treated as a lesser person? Those are powerful questions. The, the first one, um, we always approach sexual topics with great humility because every single one of us are vulnerable to sexual sin, to sexual brokenness, every single one of us. So we, it really is a space of, um, it is holy ground. Whether someone is um, 
regardless of what their situation is. We're entering into holy ground. And so we want to be careful. Um, So I I think that's a starting place, that we don't enter into the conversations with answers, telling people what they should or should not do, but we enter with humility. And I think we, we... if we can begin to create dialogues for people, because you know one one of the things um, that people with same sex attraction or a um, gay or homosexual identity or orientation, the church has not been effective at all in giving people a script, a narrative for how to deal with this. Most of us have gotten our script or our narrative about our sexuality from the world. And so how can we, as followers of Jesus, help people develop a narrative, develop a script? Could we, as believers, be open to having conversations with people? And, you know, a friend of mine, uh, Carolyn Moore, writes a blog called The Art of Holiness, and, and she wrote a blog in 2016 about, um, about resurrection and about how, for some of us, we're in graves for a long time and that part of the role of the church is to sit with people in that grave until Jesus fully resurrects them. And it is messy And it is hard to sit at the grave, whether it's our own stuff or someone else's. Um, So what can, what can, um, what could one expect from the church? Um, This is my, this is my closing statement, but I'll go ahead and make it now. Uh, And, and I think this is, if you look on the wall, Living Hope is a word-rooted, spirit-empowered, culturally engaged church. Like, what does it mean to be culturally engaged as far as sexuality goes? Like, what do we need to be about here to step up our game, to be more sincere and authentic in how we enter into these places with people who have questions, who are confused, who struggle, who are hurt, who are wounded? Um, Probably you should address the what can what well, can they expect. I was going to say, church. see them as a soul, not as sin. Right. As it's one of the. Um, we too often focus on the sin and we miss the soul. Right. The human. <laughs> uh, Dr. Preston Sprinkle has an organization called uh, the Center for um, Faith, Gender, and Sexuality, and I appreciate a lot of what he has to say and regarding LGBTQ um, issues, well, first of all, they're not issues, they're people. Mm. And he says that 83% of LGBT people were raised in the church. So this is us. Mm. This is, uh, it's not us versus them, this is us. The 51% left the church after they were 18 years old. Only 3% left because of church teaching on marriage and sexuality. That the reason this big number of people left the church was relational issues, not theological issues. 
Um, they left because they were dehumanized, isolated, shunned, or kicked out. And so I think as the church, we need to rethink and invite the Holy Spirit to search our hearts for how we might engage these people and these hurts and this situation in a more effective way that that represents Jesus because every time Jesus dealt with someone in their sin, their sickness, or their brokenness, he always was compassionate. Mm -hmm. He ministered to the person, Mm -hmm. and that's what we do. We do what Jesus I think, too, we can take comfort that the Holy Spirit will give you the wisdom. Absolutely. If you're abiding in Him, He will show you how to handle those mm-hmm. situations. So let His Spirit flow in you and through you and give you the grace um, to handle that situation the way He wants Absolutely. you to. And there's, there's lots of great things that we can read. Mm-hmm. You know, there's research. There's all sorts of things that we can read that help us make sense of these challenges. Um, I think... Uh, one kind of follow-up question, same topic, uh, is uh, this person was asking what can they expect from this church oh, in terms of, and also, yeah. let me go ahead and ask the second question. If um, if SSA and adultery are both equivalent sins, why do homosexuals experience hate crimes against them at higher proportional uh, proportions than adulterers do? So, so SSA is not the same as adultery because it's just an attraction until it's acted on so having the attraction is not necessarily a sin in my view any more than as i said earlier a heterosexual attracted somebody that they're not married to it's a temptation but not a sin but i think i know what's behind the question what i surely desire for this church is the grace and truth um, balance and that we start with grace and we begin with grace and we we just are deep in grace and love and 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 discussion and seeing that, that them as a person and that we not treat this homosexual sin any greater than than heterosexual sin we're all fallen and uh, I think our resources here with prayer ministry and counseling and small groups it, it's a great place celebrate recovery there's a, it's a great place to, to grow in your sexual wholeness and in your obedience to God. To go back to that, uh, the first part, Jeff, about um, why are there hate crimes, I think that's uh, a powerful thing to ponder. Um, I mean, my, my first response to that is fear and shame mm-hmm. um, uh, on the part of the people who are perpetrating the hate crimes. Um, it's likened to the Pharisees. Legalism. To stone, yeah. yeah. If it's done by Christians, I, I can't imagine, but it's unfortunately sometimes is. It's, it's a Pharisaical, self-righteous spirit, a religious spirit that would, would cause them to think that this somehow is worse than other sins. You know, Jesus said, clean the inside of the cup. And I think we have to be careful to do that. Amen. Okay, this is a culture question as well as um, about purity and practical boundaries and things. Great question. How would you address wounds created by the purity culture? 
which teaches sex is sin until your wedding night. This seems to put a lot of pressure, especially on women, to make this mental switch rather than quickly on your wedding day and can even bring anxiety. How would you encourage the single believer who wants to honor Christ in this area but feels shame due to purity culture related? How would you speak about sexual deprivation as it affects both single and married people? Well, you'd be great at addressing that, Phyllis. <laughs> that goes right with your calling. <laughs> okay. It's like my palms are sweating. Right here. <laughs> Nothing like being on the hot seat, right? Too many, no, don't, I, too many don'ts and not enough do. Right, is my, is uh, my conclusion. I like this question. Um, and I'm... The purity part, especially, and, and one of the things that Joyce Penner helped me understand, and Joyce and her husband Cliff wrote a book called The Gift of Sex, and it's a wonderful book. Um, and Joyce and Cliff are some of the original Christian sex therapists. They practice out in Pasadena, California, and they both grew up in the Mennonite tradition, and so they've, oh, wow. um, they're, they're so powerful in, in what they teach. But I think one of the things that has been troubling and damaging about the purity culture, and I want to say that I don't think the people who started the purity culture movement were, um, had bad intentions. Um, I think they were doing the best that they could with what they had at the time, I, th I think. That's my take on it. But I think, and this is what Joyce Penner says, she says that our sexuality does not make us pure or impure. That our sexuality, our sexual desires, our sexual attractions are not impure. That that is, that's God-given. And so I like how David talked about what, how, how do we look at sexual wholeness? Uh, and, and I do agree with the, the person who wrote the question that there's, has been such an emphasis on don't do it, i.e. sexual purity, that anything sexual, sexual thoughts, sexual understanding will somehow make you impure, that that has just crippled so many women and consequently their marriages because it's like they're supposed to waltz down the aisle the day of their wedding and morph into some sort of sexual goddess. And like it doesn't work that way. And so I think beginning to understand and appreciate that the sexual part of us is also is the image of God. Um, God is written all over our bodies. We are, I don't know who said this, but I stole it a long time ago, so to whoever it is. Um, we are not pornographic. We are theographic. Wow. Meaning that God is etched on our bodies. I mean, what does it mean that God created us like him in his image and we are sexual beings? Like, it's, I'll take the Pauline cop out here. <laughs> Lo, it is a mystery. <laughs> you know, it's too big for us to understand, but it is something that we certainly need to ponder. And I think that right teaching is how we, and an encounter with Jesus, is how we get over the damage that we sustain um, if we came out of the purity movement. So good. Was there another part of that question? Uh, I think that was it. Okay. Yeah. How about one more? Okay. It's so funny. She said that she felt her 
hand sweating. My, I just noticed my hand was sweating. I'm just holding <laughs> the microphone. Yeah, but so, you got to wow. sort through all these questions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, this is about parenting, and I'll do two in one if that's okay. Um, two parenting questions. How do you, as a Christian parent, create boundaries for your adult child that identifies as transgender to live in your home so you can still honor God in your home? That's the first question. Second question, um, my daughter lives with her mom out of state. She just turned 15 and showing signs of being interested in the same sex. I talk with her daily. I've asked her once if she started dating. She tells me no. Her mom and I have had discussions with her about liking the same sex. How do I ask if she's interested in the same sex without running her away? First question about someone who identifies as transgender in your home, an adult child. Second question about a 15-year-old um, daughter showing interest in SSX. Well, I think those are um, probably pretty common scenarios that real people are having to deal with right now, maybe more than ever. Um, so I think it's, it's important to address those questions and help people think through them. I don't think there's a five easy steps kind of thing, that this is difficult, it's messy, um, likely painful. Um, regarding um, transgender um, people, so they're not, we want to think about people who struggle in this way as people. Um, often with teenagers, they experience what's called gender dysphoria, which is a uh, discomfort and an incongruence in their gender and their sex, and it's it's very difficult for them to understand. Um, also, regarding teenagers, a lot of times people really begin to grapple with their attraction issues when they're teens, and so it's it's a common experience. And I think for parents, the main thing is relationship, that you stay in relationship with your child, whether it's adult or teen or whatever age they are, um, and that you love them, and that you, um, you help them through it, whether it's getting outside help or sitting with them and having long conversations, but that you stay connected to that child because the worst thing I think that can happen is for a person to feel orphaned by their family because of whatever their sexuality issues that they're dealing with. That's good. Thank you. That's so good. Well, Phyllis, I want to thank you. This is, we could go all day. Uh, so I hope this is kind of a starter in being willing to talk about uncomfortable things and just know I'm available, our staff is available, you're available. And so let's keep the conversation going and let's grow in our understanding of grace and truth. Do you have anything maybe just to kind of put the cherry on top that hasn't been said? I think it's already been said, okay. the, the, the culturally engaged part. That's, that's my, my personal challenge and my challenge to this church is begin to think about that and be in conversation and prayerful conversation about what that might look like for us. Thank you for what you do. I'm yep, so blessed that you're in our church. And I want to say thank you to David um, because he's really brave to do this three-series 
three sermon series, and um, I just appreciate so much that he's willing to um, go there and have the awkward conversation and get the the blank stares. <laughs> You're going to talk about what? <laughs> so it's it's so a little extra quiet in here the last two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right, as a worship team, thank you guys. All right, here's how we're going to close. As the worship team comes, uh, we're going to put a prayer up here, and I'm going to invite us together to pray this prayer. So let me read it through so you hear it, and then I'll tell you how we're going to do this. God, thank you for creating me the way you did. I confess and renounce any uses of my body for impurity. I submit to God and resist the devil. I surrender my life and my body to you, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me live a holy life for your glory. Let that just sit for a moment. You can, from your heart, pray that. And I would hope and pray every one of us would. Power in praying out loud truth. I want us to quietly stand. By the way, before we pray this prayer, if you're here today watching online, and you're not saved, you've never received Christ in your life, do that today. Invite Him in. He loves you. He created you. You will begin the eternal relationship with your Creator that you were put on, on earth to have. Invite Him in your heart. If you need to talk to somebody about how to do that, we're available. So I'm going to say a phrase, and if you can pray this from your heart, repeat after me. God, thank you for creating me the way you did. I confess and renounce any uses of my body for impurity. I submit to God and resist the devil. I surrender my life and my body to you, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me live a holy life for your glory. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your word and your spirit. And I just pray now over this precious body of believers, those watching online, that you will take us deeper in this area and all areas. We love you and praise you. Have your will and way in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name. I'd like to invite our prayer team to come and be available to pray. The altar's open if you want to come and kneel. Sing this song. It's a great reminder of who paid all our sins.